My name is Kane Wallstrom and I'm here with... Goran Lonka. And today we have guest Simon Paris from Merchant Banking Group. Simon, how are you? Very good, thanks for having me. Good man. Before we get into it, I know Goran's got some questions to ask you. Simon, straight off the bat, mate, uh, what Netflix show are you watching right now? Um, right now we are watching The IT Crowd. Lovely. UK. UK. That's sort of like late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, early 2000s. Cool, cool. Uh, superpowers. Would you rather have the power of invisibility, supersonic speed, or flight? I'd have to go with flight. Me too. What is the most used app on your phone? Um, actually, Call logic. <laughs> <laughs> Calculator for me. <laughs> actually, it's, um, it's a calisthenics app oh. called Phoenix. Right. Cool, cool. Uh, favorite holiday of the year? Um, that would have to be Fiji. Last but not least, if you were a pair of shoes, what brand would you be? Nike. Mm. Nice. Kane, back to you. Cool. Um, For all listeners out there, Simon is General Manager of Merchant Banking Group, which is a non-bank lender here uh, in New Zealand. And we'll get into detail what that is um, through this episode and also to an educational piece. But firstly, for all the listeners, Simon, tell us um, where you grew up, uh, who you are, and, and a bit of your background. Okay. Um, I'm an Auckland boy, so I grew up um, in Epsom. Um, I went to um, Auckland Boys Grammar and senior finished up at Senior College. Yep. Um, after school, I went straight into banking because I just had a, a fascination about finance, money, and you know how that all works. Right. So that was from an early age. You it had was. that. Okay. Yeah. Which is interesting. A lot of kids don't, and me personally, a lot of people didn't have that early on. Where um, I suppose finance and money was an interest of people. Obviously, it's an interest to go buy things. But well, what what was the catalyst for me is that you know when I was eighteen, I went and got a personal overdraft and a credit card, which back then they just gave them to you. Yeah. And I used it like money like it wasn't even my money didn't understand didn't understand the con- it. Yeah. and I, I spent it all on you know just trinkets and booze and it, <laughs> As ended, you do. it ended up costing me more a lot more and a lot of time to pay that off and I just thought why how did that happen and how can I educate myself to yeah. not fall into that trap and educate others about the pitfalls of yeah. finance and I think whether you are a, a young student like yourself or at the time or um, a, an accomplished corporate world, a lot of people actually don't understand uh, how finance, especially credit cards, personal loans, and that actually work with interest and repayments and, and how to get on top of things. We see it through clientele all the time where it's just a spiral effect and they'll take out debt to pay off debt. That's right. That's right. And our school education at the moment doesn't provide that at school to give us the crux of what a credit card is, what a personal loan is, what insurance is, all that kind of stuff. And I've always been a bit ad- big advocate of you know that being taught in schools, and I'm I'm happy to hear that that's actually coming into schools now. Yeah, I saw that. So you went straight into the banking world to obviously educate yourself, pretty much. Pretty much. Okay. And yeah. how did you find that? It was um, it was a very interesting journey. I started off um, as a teller because what I wanted to do is I wanted to understand the full process of banking yeah um, so I started off a, as a teller in Remuera and what bank uh, Westpac Westpac right yeah. okay and I moved up the ranks pretty quickly yep um, I was in head office within three years wow. in property finance yeah 
And so when you say property yeah. finance, what were you doing inside Property there? finance was based around large developments. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So financing those sort of um, apartments or large subdivisions, etc. Okay. So you're dealing with developers direct and, and Correct. And how old were you at this stage? Oh, I would have been 24. Three, and so these developers are going, you're 23, you're advising me and financing me into these multi-million dollar deals. Love it. Mm. Good so stuff. It was, a, it was a great learning experience. Okay. So inside Westpac, how long were you at Westpac for? Um, I was there for five years. Okay. And you cut your teeth more so cut in that, teeth that, that yeah. property finance division in the end? For sure. Okay. And then um, I I got the travel bug yep. and, and we I did my OE yep. over in uh, Europe and London, yep. and then decided that that was the move that I wanted to make. So I moved over to London uh, just as the GFC hit. Nice, perfect yeah, timing. Great Good timing. timing. <laughs> so um, as I was landing, um, Lehman Brothers and Fannie Mac had just folded in America. In America, yep. And that was all those foreclosures and pretty much barn doors swinging in in um, middle of nowhere, wasn't it? That's right. And um, when when I landed, people were going, "What on earth are you doing here at mm. this time?" You know, bankers were being laid off left, right, and centre. Yeah. But I managed to secure a role, and I, I can attribute that to being a Kiwi. Okay. It's that hard work, hard worker, yeah. Kiwi attitude, down to earth people. Down yeah. to earth. I ended up replacing two people's jobs, um, wow. and I worked for Bank Lumi, which was okay. an Israeli bank. Yeah, we, interestingly we actually enough. looked them up because yeah. we never actually heard of them before. No, no. Um, Just quickly before you go on there, I want to get your take on the GFC. Obviously understanding it now but back then when it was all going on was it just mind-blowing what what was being told to you at the time working in the banking world absolutely mm. um it was it was a very different time for the finance industry then it was um, rogue back then it was pretty rogue yeah um i never got to experience it here in new zealand because new okay. zealand was quite insulated from yeah. from that compared to the rest of the world where in you know the likes of london um one of my first jobs was to let someone know that they needed to repay three million pounds oh wow welcome welcome yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah wow it was a bit different because we didn't actually um it wasn't lending on bricks and mortar houses like what i'm used to now it was yeah. actually against share and bond portfolios yeah. and the share market just got absolutely hammered yeah and people's um wealth just disappeared overnight so the crux of it was that um, with the GFC was that I suppose ninjas, no income, no jobs, mm. um, were getting credit or obtaining credit on nothing really, That's essentially right. at the end of the day. And um, it really folded overnight, didn't it? It did. It did. And there was a lot of sophisticated uh, lending instruments out in the market which people didn't really understand. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a bit of a house of cards really. Once one of them folded, it all just started all crumbling down. Yeah. And it was a it was a hard education for a lot of people. Well, back then there was no such things as macro prudent lending tools or loan to value ratios, really, in terms mm. of what was being assessed. It was 
buy a house at 100% if you've got that's right income that shows in your bank statement. 110% probably in some cases yeah. and loans I'm guessing were probably written on the back of a napkin yeah that's right but not a lot of people know about this so for any listeners out there who are interested in GFC or global financial crisis and what an entailed from in terms of credit default swaps I would suggest to maybe look into that and there's a really good movie on that actually called The Big Short yeah. great sort movie. of um, yeah. explains <laughs> them really interesting yeah. I think that's one of my all time greats so. yeah, it's mm. really especially good. the ninja part really good <laughs> <laughs> um, okay so so you are obviously, um, yeah, you, you are over in the UK and taking your job with um, Bank of Lumite. And so how was that? It was, it was great. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it was very different from a culture point of view. Yeah. But um, I, I learned a lot there and it was um, a great opportunity to work overseas and see how rest of the world deals in finance because New Zealand's a very, very small part of it. Yeah, yeah. So what was your main role there at the bank? Um, I was a, what they call a credit and compliance analyst. Okay. Yeah. So when you say, when you say analyst, you were actually analysing um, consumer individuals that Correct. part of that bank? Okay. Correct, yeah. And were you actually getting to the crux of signing off on deals? Yes. Wow, okay. Yeah. So you would have been seeing some things in that time that um, probably wouldn't even be around today. That's correct, yeah. So it was... It was great, and I, I stayed with Bank Lumi the whole time I was I was there. Right. Okay. Um, and I decided to come back to New Zealand when, when I met my wife over there. Yep. And um, at the time, New Zealand was recovering. Yep. Um, and I decided it was time to to come home, and that was about three years after I left. So, in the world scheme of things, New Zealand actually didn't take a, a huge hit, did it? Really, compared to the rest of the world. Not really. No. Not really. And our property market bounced back quite quickly post that. I think 2011 it was going quite quite hard since That's uh, right. 2008. That's when I came. Yeah. When I, came. I came back at the <coughs> very end of uh, 2010. So just quickly, the bank, oh, this um, interests me, the Bank of Israel. So their funds were, how, how did it work for them in terms of, were they an international bank or what was sort of, because we don't hear them down here. No, they, I mean, they obviously they were... I think um, Bank Lumi stayed, stand, stood for um, State Bank. Okay. So it was one of the earliest Israeli banks yep. there. Yeah. Um, and they had offices around Europe, right. one of them being okay. in London. Wow. Okay. Interesting. And then so you come back to New Zealand um, and you join ANZ from there? That's right. So yep. I went into um, institutional banking. Okay. Which was, you know, obviously the. The highest end of the bank when you're dealing with large multinational corporates. Yep. Uh, again, a big learning lesson in there as to how the other end of the market works. Yeah. Um, but personally, I found it a bit faceless hmm. in the fact that, sure, I was, you know, being part of $100 million transactions. But there was no heart in it, if yep. that sort of makes sense. It was just a numbers game. It was just a numbers game. Yeah. You know, the amount of zeros on the page didn't really make any difference. Yeah. Interesting, because eh? banking has changed dramatically, and, and obviously through your time you would have seen it, but it used to be a very much a, um, a, a build a relationship with your your banker on the corner and get to know them quite well. Now we just possibly just don't even go to branches yeah, anymore. Yeah, even like loyalty in terms of people that have been with the same bank for 
20 mm. odd years they seem to think oh you know I've been with my manager for 20 years mm. I'm going to get this deal over the line and he's going to help me where <laughs> at the end of the day you know the bank doesn't really care nah. these days no. about if it's losing business you know through the back door as long as it's getting business through the front door that's yeah. right mm. that's right and I, I always talk about the fact that you know people say oh, I've been with the bank for 20 30 years does that not make a difference in you know what I'm trying to do and what frustrated me is that it should have but it didn't no and you know everything gets put into the computer through an algorithm and the computer says yes or the computer says no and in in the heyday there you know things were gray you could you could mitigate you could discuss yep. you could you could plead a case where um, now it's very black and white it's either yes, you can do it, or no, sorry. And there's no loyalty in terms of you've been with us for 30 years, you've got you know, great credit history, never missed a repayment, don't even have a credit card, whatever. It's sorry, can't do it. That's right. If one little thing doesn't work, it, the whole thing doesn't work. So obviously from ANZ, you then go to BNZ. That's right. Yep. So after institutional, I went to um, private banking. Okay. Um, that was to get an understanding of the wealthy in New Zealand. Yep. How did they do things differently? Yep. And so your approach the whole time through banking has been quite methodical, trying correct. to learn each area area and get an understanding of, of what's going on. That's exactly right. So I wanted to understand how the upper echelons gained their wealth, yep. what they did with their wealth, um, and so how you, they grew their wealth. So were you dealing with people of incomes of a certain um, uh, tier and then and above? Yeah, that's right. So um, I think the minimum income uh, was quarter of a million. Yep. Uh, minimum um, lending was two million or there okay. or thereabouts, and that was PAYE yeah. wages. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and then after that, I wanted to understand the business side, so I went to business banking and was a manager there. Wow. <laughs> wow, this is cool. Yeah, this is cool. So, you know, prior to that, I had little to no um, experience in SMEs. Yeah. And, and New know, Zealand's built on them. New Zealand is absolutely built on them. And there are hundreds of thousands of SMEs employing millions of people. And I needed to understand how that worked. Mm. Um, and then I moved into uh, BNZ, which was small business again, but from an acquisition side okay. of things. So more of a business development manager, which was the next phase in my career that I wanted to explore is that you know how do you go out and network hunt and acquire deals for the bank and that's what that so you me. had to go out there like a bdm correct to bring in business correct love it so interesting that's right i had no portfolio to look after no scope so you weren't bound to being only technology-based businesses no. or so you weren't sort of given a book and said welcome you know these are the clients you're going to service no wow it, it, was it a new role um, no, it had been no? established okay. for a couple of years before I came along, but it was essentially, you know, here's your laptop, here's your car, go out, find small businesses yep. that need our help yep. and bring them in. So what's quite profitable from a, 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 a banking point of view when you're doing this? Are you looking for customers for transactions in terms of accounts? Are you looking for lending? What, what are you actually looking for in this it was, space? It was for... Um, lending predominantly, but it was about providing you know the full suite yep. to help a small business 
yep. um, you know, be more profitable or, yep. or manage their money better. So you get into the crux of, okay, cool, what's the business plan, what the forecasting looks like, all this kind of stuff, helping them grow if they need to acquire and build, buy other businesses out, all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Interesting. So that's really sort of getting into advising, isn't it, for, for people as well, rather than transactional-based banking. Yeah, it's about it's about education, yeah. the education piece again. You know, yeah. they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And you know, we had many different um, products and services that would help them run their business better. Yeah. And that was about the education piece and providing a service and a solution that helped them grow their business. Simon, just quickly. Yeah. From a private banker point of view and a mm-hmm. business banker point of view. Um, what sort of um, targets or widgets or sort of w- did you have in order to were you qualified for like different tiers of bonuses commissions and stuff like that or were you just straight PAYE we're going to guarantee you an income whether or not you bring in business um, from a banking perspective yeah. um, it was straight PAYE okay yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, you know commission was based on um, set KPIs yeah. yeah and that could be um uh, meeting customers, reviewing needs, uh, product cross-selling, yep. etc. So tell us your biggest frustration, I bet I can point this out, mm-hmm. as to you're going, okay, cool, well, I'm bringing in all these great clients that I think they're rounded, they're perfect for BNZ, but then potentially you're getting a no when you're trying to progress deals? or yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. So my frustration was is that I could see that these people would do they had great ideas they had a plan in place and they had the background and experience to do it and I believed in it but unfortunately it's very hard to put that into a computer system that doesn't mitigate you know the fact that he's been in the industry for 40 years yeah you can't put that in there yeah um his you know he's got a well presented business plan uh forecasts done by a chartered accountant that you can see the growth, you can see where they're going, but the computer says no. That's not fair. No, it's not. <laughs> and it was, and I just found that incredibly frustrating that I was saying no more than I was saying yes. So what did yeah. you do then with a the client? Would you just say, sorry, we can't help you? Or um, Well, that's sort of how I got into my foray of, of non-bank. Because yeah. I, I started to wonder, well, if I'm saying no, it's more likely that the other banks are saying no. So where do these people go? Mm. You know, you know, it's not like they go, oh, well, I guess that's my dream over. Um, just go back to the drawing board. Um, and that's sort of when I started learning about non-bank because previously I had little to no knowledge or experience. Well, of when you come from the banking world, non-bank almost is an explicit word. That's right. You know, it's it almost sort of sounded like, you know, uh, Blasphemy. Sh- Black market, you know? <laughs> yeah. No shady deals done yeah, in the totally. back alley or yeah. something like that. And, yeah. But um, the truth couldn't be more far from that. Mm. So this gets you into, obviously, um, non-bank and uh, with the merchant bank groups. Did they, how did this come about? Did you approach them? Did they approach you? Or? Yeah. Um, well, when I, when I was doing my research on, you know, how can I help these clients... Um, so, because part of what I wanted to do is that I would say it's a no for now, but here's what you can do to um, achieve what you want, yeah. and then we then you can come back to me once um, that sort of thing is sorted. Yeah. And I started reaching out to some non-banks because I saw the opportunity that if non-banks are doing these deals, 
they will come back to the bank at some point in time. So I wanted to start a relationship where I could be the center point to bring them back. Yeah. And that's when I found Merchant Banking Group and we started um, discussing ways that we can work together. And um, we were in a meeting one day, he goes, do you just want to come join me? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've given us enough business, so yeah, might as well. Yeah, so, so that, and that was the end of that. I just, um, you know, he goes, this is what we do here. Mm. This is how we help people. This is, you know, everything you've learned in banking um, is, is great for the bank, but there is so much more that you can look at to see an outcome. Yeah. And I just found that absolutely eye-opening. Okay, so tell us and the listeners about the Merchant Banking Group, the history of them, and um, when they started, who they are, um, and also, too, what a non-bank lender is, I suppose. Sure. So um, Merchant Banking Group's been around since about 2000. Um, it's, it's gone through an, a number of um, different formations, so to speak. Um, but now what we do is we, we specialise in providing um, solutions to people that have, where the bank has said no. Yep. Um, and it's about thinking outside the box, seeing the entire picture and formulating a, a structure that works for them, works for us, um, mitigates the risks, and everyone can see the outcome of it. So it's as simple as that. So the key thing is there is no um, uh, banking software to sell you yes or no. It's on um, human interaction, Correct. understanding someone's goals and objectives, um, and then working out on a piece of paper rather than a computer system. That's, yeah, absolutely right. So we, you know, I, I like to say that we don't have any form of credit or compliance policy. Yep. It's about how, to we, how can we make this work yep. rather than why it doesn't work. You know, there are always ways around it. Yeah. So tell us um, about the Merchant Bank for funding line in terms mm -hmm. of obviously how is uh, this funded and where does it come from? Just sure. people would want to know, I suppose. Sure. So um, from Merchant Banking's perspective, we have private investors. Yep. But, you know, the entire um, non-bank is made up of different ways of funding so some of the larger non-bank funders take deposits so yep. they're deposit taking funders they need a banking license for that um good question they would have um a lot of regulatory yeah. um framework behind it yeah because they are taking client deposits yeah uh but you know the definition of a non-bank is a financier that's not a registered bank yep. so that that's a very large uh, scope of the market that covers everything from car loans to personal loans to unsecured business loans as well as property which is where yep. where I base myself okay and um, you obviously take first security uh, on most of your uh, deals um, majority is first but we do take seconds as well yeah so that's where we become um, a good uh, point of difference where we we do what we call syndicated transactions yep. so We'll do a first and we'll do a second yep. um, to mitigate risks and, and make sure the whole deal works. Okay. And in terms of costings um, for, for you guys, what's it sort of cost roughly? And this is, we've got to, um, I suppose, tell listeners out there, you can't always be fixated on an interest rate. We talked, um, mm. I suppose, off, off mics around opportunity cost a lot of the time. So we will outlay what the interest rates are, but just remember that there are opportunities out there that outweigh what a cost is as well. Absolutely right. So, 
if we look back at how you know non-banks are financed, i.e., through deposit takers or private investors, etc., um, from the get-go you're looking at um, you know if you're paying de deposit takers five percent, then you, there's going to have to be five percent plus the margin on top. Exactly. Yeah. So I typically say that you know our interest rates are around you know starting around the sevens yep. and then go north of that. Yep. And the the reason why the interest rate goes higher comes from a risk basis. Yeah. Um, so you guys do risk-based risk pricing on those? Correct. Location comes into it as well? Location. There's a lot of factors that come into yeah. it, um, as well as the LVR ratio. Of course, yeah. Um, also client history as well, who they are, what they've done. As, yes. Um, you know, we have to look at their credit history. Yep as well as um, the type of security being taken. Is yep. it residential, commercial, bare land? Or is it something a bit more interesting than that? Mm -hmm. So a lot of these factors get put into, you know, what I would call a risk matrix to mm -hmm. understand what the pricing is. And then, um, like you just mentioned before, it's about discussing with the client the opportunity costs. Yes, it might be 7 or 10%, but what is the what is the opportunity from uh, taking that finance and the the outcome of that? Yeah, it's and this is what we always talk about, right? Is it the opportunity cost sometimes? But people just don't understand, mm. unfortunately. No, but that that's when you know a good uh, broker come becomes you know an integral part of doing the mm. doing the transaction. Mm. Um, we were going to do an educational piece on this, but I think we just kept running with it because a lot of these questions intertwine here. Um, I suppose some of the questions that we always get is, is it safe? How do I know it's safe? You know, you, you think your bank is safe at the end of the day borrowing money, uh, whether that's yes or no. But, uh, I mean, if it's a question, is it safe to borrow from you guys? What would you say to that? Oh, absolutely. It, it, is, it is safe to borrow from um, non-banks. Um, we have to remember that we all have to stick to regulatory requirements under the FMA or, or fiscal, etc., or the or the triple CFA. So there is a lot of regulatory framework in there to protect consumers. So you know, it's it's not some sort of um, back alley, yeah, sort of transaction. Yeah. It's all very upfront. Um, Which is yeah. what a lot of people think non-bank lending or second-tier lending in New Zealand is. It's a lot of dodgy dealings we've had probably previous to in 2008 and GFC when um, some of those big financial groups fell under mm -hmm. um, and there was probably some wrongdoings there. We do have a stigma that rolls with that, but it's a changing market now and New Zealand is starting to catch up probably with the rest of the world. We're still well behind, but you look at Australia and non-bank lending over there is prevalent. It's everywhere. You have a prime bank and you have a non-bank lender next to them. That's right. So education's massive, right? Yes. In this and space. As the banks continue to restrict their credit and the credit policy, um, non-bank is just becoming yeah. more and more prevalent. And yeah. those policies change all the time. They change week all in, the time. Yeah. yeah. So it's a changing landscape mm -hmm. for the banks. Yeah. And people are still wanting to get into their first home or, or, or buy that next property, etc. Yeah. And the non-bank is becoming the saviour in many respects yeah uh, and we are becoming more and more responsible for keeping this country going so at, at um 
at Merchant Banking, do you guys, how do you guys come across clients? Because a lot of people won't hear of you. Do you come through advisors or brokers or obviously direct as well? Yeah, majority, I would say 95% is through the broker network. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have uh, clients coming direct, but broker is the main source mm-hmm. of our referral. Okay. And the application process, we all know the application process through a bank is quite strenuous and, t- and quite long and tight and turnarounds are blown out to 10 working days minimum. What's sort of it like for you guys, the application process and times? Um, the application process is not that different from the bank. We still require the same amount of information, but the point of difference is that since we are making the decisions, that becomes a lot faster. Yeah. It becomes a lot more fluid. Yeah. And it's also about um, structuring it in a way that works for all parties involved. Right, okay. And um, I was talking about that, are you guys, you're not after a customer for life, right? You're after more of the short to medium term type borrower? Well, in, in non-bank there are, I, I categorize non-bank into two, into two categories. You've got your long-term um, mortgage lending, mm-hmm. which is very, very similar to a bank. You know, 30 years, principal and interest, you can have fixed rates, all that kind of stuff. And then you've got the second part, which is what I call the asset lending into the market, which is where I am, yep. which is typically 12 to 24 month terms um, with a very defined exit, mm. um, which typically is either um, going back to a bank yep. once once they've achieved what they want to achieve, yep. and the bank is happy to with that structure, yeah. or um, they want to sell an asset but on their terms. Okay. So you, I suppose if we're defining it, two types of clients are maybe like development funding mm-hmm. um, for people doing projects on development on housing. Um, also, would the second type be like a mum and dad with maybe a bit of adverse credit, wrapping up some debt, good loan to value ratio. Um, tidy up for 12 months and then get back to my bank. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Are you seeing a bit more of that? Um, yes, yeah. So, you know, we see a bit of um, that sort of debt consolidation piece where um, they may have racked up some short-term debts, credit cards, overdrafts, maybe even business loans, etc. Yeah. where, you know, they, they're paying, you know, what's a credit card, like 20%? Yeah. Yeah. If you're paying the minimum amount on the credit card, which is what three percent per month, yep. you're never going to get out no, of it. Just go backwards. You go backwards, but you're paying for it. And that's why I learned when I was eighteen. Yep. Yeah. You know, you, you're just constantly stuck in this trap. Yeah. But if you can consolidate and um, clean, clean every, clean the house out, so to speak, and have it on a structure that is now going to work for you. Yeah then you're going to be able to progress forward and actually you know, get out of that hole yep. a lot quicker. So I suppose for the listeners out there, if you do have approached your bank and have tried to tie up some outside debt and they won't do it and you are drowning, we've come across a few of those, um, you potentially can look to someone like yourself, uh, your company, and, and wrap that debt up and tidy it up for 12, 24 months and then go back to a, a bank long term. Yeah, so I mean, what we're talking about is you know, um, property-backed, Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they need to have sufficient equity in their property to do so. Um, but yeah, case by case, okay. we see we and the, on the development side of things, um, the banks have become pretty adverse towards it. Mm-hmm. In fact, they don't really want to do it. Yeah. 
but for the consumer, there is typically a very good upside for them in doing so. Yeah. So we see a lot of um, you know people that say want to buy a property, subdivide, um, build a second, and, and mm-hmm. sell it, yep. and 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 it ma- if it makes sense, mm-hmm. then yeah, we're happy to help. What um what what type of things do you guys focus on? Is it more so the exit strategy for the client, or are you guys looking obviously at loan to value ratios mm-hmm. in there, making sure you have the equity? Are you looking at debt servicing? What what do people need? Age. To what about age? Yeah, age not a problem. Um, when it comes to debt servicing and equity equity position, we look at both of those. Um, you know, if someone can can service the loan then we obviously want them to do that yep um if they if they want to do something that requires them to maybe capitalize the interest to achieve the outcome yeah that's fine as long as there is a clear exit and uh, we are very very concentrated on the exit strategy yeah we want to understand um how long it's going to take and what the takeout is yeah and if that is feasible so what an exit strategy means in your case is that if you're a builder and you're building homes, it's obviously selling them off in that time yeah. period. And then if you're a mum and dad with bad credit history, you're tidying everything up, What? how long can you get back to a bank and making sure that debt servicing is there to get them back off your books? Absolutely correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned capitalised interest. Mm-hmm. Obviously, for people out there that don't understand that, give us a bit of an idea on that. Okay, so... Um, in some circumstances you may not have the cash flow to service the debt obligations of what you're doing whatever that might be um, for that set period of time but you might have the equity in the house where we can add that interest component onto the loan Mm. so essentially you're not actually having to pay anything out but it's the interest for say 12 months has been added to the loan it's been held in trust and monthly payments are being made from that holding to service alone during that period and, and i suppose non-bank lenders on that um are you guys worried about it being in personal names or do you want it to be in trusts or limited companies how do you guys like that um it, well it's not about how we like it it's about what's best for the customer okay. so you know if it is in personal names and they've got um advice from you know, um, an accountant or a solicitor that is to, it is to stay in personal names, yep. then they should do that. Okay. If it's in a trust or a limited company, um, that's fine as well. But it's really about what is best for the customer. Okay. And what do you see in the non-bank lending space over the next maybe five or, or 10 years happening in New Zealand? And where do you see it going? I think the New Zealand um, non-bank industry is going to grow massively over the next five years. Mm-hmm. Um, the banks are not going to start easing up anytime soon, um, and it comes down to the non-bank industry to keep New Zealand going. Really, in my opinion, yeah, especially in the development side of things, um, there are lots of homes that need to be built, and uh, if the banks aren't willing to do it, I think it falls down to us to do it. Do you see there probably being an opportunity around um, the mortgage deferrals as well that potentially happened in lockdown where these um, uh, families or people went on interest-free um, loans for 12 months and then all of a sudden debt servicing requirements change, they get hit with these big repayments which they can't make. Do you see that being a, a potential avenue to, to help these people out? Well, I, I hope that doesn't happen. Mm. I really do. I think you know if the, if the bank had approved a mortgage deferral 
um, they did that for for a good reason. Mm. And you know, the banks don't want to be put into a position where they've put a client into hardship. So I hope that I don't see that. To be honest, it's interesting. A lot of feedback we get is people go on mortgage deferrals and they actually didn't even know what it uh, meant, uh, or that yeah. they had a buffer in That's terms right. of something set aside that could actually service the repayments. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You know, um, it's very easy to take the easy way out and sort of maybe even put your head in the sand mm. and just sort of hope it will get better. But they did pitch it as a holiday. So as soon as people start hearing mortgage holiday, they yeah. think it's free money, right? I, I didn't. Th- I don't personally think that was done very well. No. Nah. It was done too quickly too. Everything was like really, you know, in terms of the marketing and pushed it out there. I think there wasn't enough education um, for people to understand that. Like I know we try to look at fine print and to find it, you had to go quite deep on websites to actually get the crux of it. Because we had people that are earning really good coin in lockdown approach us and say, hey, I might as well just take a holiday. And we're like, why? Oh, well, I don't have to pay my mortgage, but do you mm. know actually what happens at the back end? But yeah. you've got a 100K revolving credit unused facility. Why would you take a mor- mortgage holiday? Right. Yeah. You know? and, and, and again, that's why um, an advisor, a broker, is so critical when making decisions like yeah. that. Because, yeah, holiday, what does that tell you? Yeah. But this also comes back, Simon, too, why you got into this game in the first, first place, yeah, it's right? Education. It's education. Yeah. And that's a big part of any type of finance but the non-bank lending space probably has the opportunity to provide that education for people because banks don't really need to change they make no. billion dollar profits yes their profits may drop they're still going to make them why do they really need to change mm. so until more competitors come into the market to actually challenge them um, I think it's a great opportunity for non-banks yeah and I, I'm a big advocate of education in the non-bank yeah. um, you know I speak on podcasts I, I do my own sort of videos on LinkedIn etc because there's that narrative isn't really out there mm. um, you know people don't know what non-bank is people don't know how we operate or what we do mm-hmm. and we are a very good um, option for a lot of people yeah but if you don't know you don't know well exactly and that's the thing if you need to research to say well this is my option a and this is B what is better because at the end of the day sometimes a is not your not your best choice mm. so tell us so what is, I suppose, your outlook or thinking on the property market? I mean, you know, if we all had a crystal ball, we'll be rich. But what is That's your right. sort of thoughts on this moving forward through COVID and now um, it seems pretty buoyant at the moment? It does. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of brokers and what they're telling me is that there's a lot of first home buyers coming into the market. Yeah. Um, you know, they are run off their feet. So I'm feeling really optimistic about it. Yeah. Um, if you listen to the commentators, you know, property prices are going to be dropping, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20%. I just haven't seen that yet. No. But um, a lot of people are waiting for the third and fourth quarter yep. to see you know, what's going to happen once the wage subsidy yeah. comes off. When is that? September? September-ish, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we've sort of got a Band-Aid on an open wound. Mm. And a lot of people are looking into their crystal balls going what is it going to look like yeah. but I just don't think we're going to we're going to know what that's going to affect is going to be on the um, employment yeah. um, on our GDP yeah. there's a lot that we don't know I suppose what we're seeing um, 
from our company is that interest rates are so low and will probably continue to go low and hold for a long, long time that um, if you're getting offered a term deposit at, a, what, 1.79%, but you can borrow at two and a half with a long-term investment, you're far better off jumping into an asset um, than mm. appreciate over time. That's right. So, and, you know, we, we talk about market corrections or, or economists talk about market corrections as being 5% drop. Well, we've got to look at the um, increases that we've had over the last five years. Completely outweigh a five percent drop off from what if people have had that property in that time. But if, they're, right. if, if, if they're buying property, you know, as speculators or looking to sell it in the, in, in the first year, mm. I understand where people are being standoffish. But if your goal is to sort of hold on for ten years' time, I mean, yeah. it's going to appreciate over time, right? That's right. That's right. So Simon, tell us. Lastly, if why should obviously um, consumers or brokers or whoever's listening out there um, come to um, Merchant Banking Group? Um, mm-hmm. What you can offer them, and um, yeah, why why your solution? Okay, so what we do is we are very experienced bankers that uh, know how to look outside the box. Mm. We know how to see a transaction, look at its risks, and mitigate those risks appropriately to ensure that the client gets their outcome, we understand what the risks are and we mitigate those appropriately. And at the end of the day, um, non-bank can be more expensive, but the outcome far outweighs that. And it's about education and um, helping guide the client through that process. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think, Simon, your background of what you've done mm. through banking and in different institutions, different countries, learning that really adds value to Merchant Bank Group as well because you can really sit with an understander client or consumer and what they want to do rather than sort of coming from a completely different angle to high end. You've worked from the ground up, so you yeah. really get that. Yeah, and that's that was my intention from day yeah. one is to understand the full process, yeah. understand what the bank's weaknesses are, Yep. And um, how we can help those people um, reach their goals, and that's what we want to do. And what's Merchant Bank Group's long-term uh, vision? Where do you guys want to be, and where do you want to go? Um, well, we're we're expanding. We're we're changing what products we provide. Um, we do. We're we're about to release um, invoice financing right um, product. Wow. Um, we we can structure lots of different things and we have a range of onshore offshore uh, private investors that we can leverage to get the outcomes that we want for our clients fantastic Goran is there anything else you'd add to I would I'd like to ask Simon and this would be really good and beneficial for our listeners because Mm. obviously education is key which is what you mentioned but also mitigating those risks could you explain to our listeners why second tier lenders or non-bank lenders care about the low LVR so much because not a lot of people Mm. understand that in terms of why the LVR has to be lower than usual as opposed to the bank. Like an 80% banking rule, 90% banking rule. Correct. Yep. Okay. So because the the transaction is likely higher risk in some areas, we want to have that equity in the house so that it's mitigated. And that's probably the, the, the simplest way of looking at yeah. it. Um, the reason why banks can go up to 80 or 90% is because typically the client is 
fits all the criteria 100% where when they come to us there might be one or two things that don't match. That could be they might not have the right credit history, mm. uh, the property might be unique, they, um, they might not be able to show the income that they're really earning. Um, and with that, there is inherent risks. So that's why we need to take a, more, a slightly more conservative approach when it comes to the equity in a house mm. so that we can ensure that um, we are protected as well. well so it's, it's essentially your insurance. That's essentially it. From a banking point of view, they've got billions of dollars out in the market. If they're looking at their overall portfolio, at a 90% deal, they're hardly exposed, right? That's right. Whereas in your point of view, when you've only got millions out in the market, um, you are exposed if you're doing those high LVR deals. That's right. So, um, you know, you might have, you know, quite a large loan with us, but that, that could be quite a large portion of our portfolio. Yeah. Where... The bank, like you said, there's billions of dollars out there. If one goes wrong, it's barely a blip on the radar. Yeah. But if one goes wrong with us with a smaller non-bank financier, yeah. then it's going to cause problems. But then um, that's why we take that slightly more conservative approach yeah. from an LBR perspective. Perfectly and explained. Probably we'll, we'll jump on that. You guys look at um, clients as people and yeah. you care about it, whereas maybe as a bank is a number. Mm. So you will go to the ends of the earth to try stop a mortgage sale or an issue around that and I'm guessing you guys have had bugger all mortgage sales yeah, in your that's time right. yeah. that's right that's right you know, that's, that's the last resort and we really don't want to be in that position yeah. we don't want to be putting mums and dads out of their homes yeah. you know? we want to be getting them into their homes yeah. we want to be um, helping them through what could be a very tough period in their life yeah. but um, there is a there is a light at the end of the tunnel, yeah, and that's where that's where we want to help them. Cool. And Simon, lastly, um, how can the consumers or other brokers out there? How can they find you guys, and, and where can they reach you to if they have any questions or yeah. potential client or deal? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, our website is uh, mbg.co.nz. Yeah. Uh, you can also uh, look me up on LinkedIn. Yep. So um, I do a lot of social posting on there about non banks, etc. So that's cool. a if you want to learn a bit more, you yep. can have a look on there. Um, or you can flick me an email, um, sp at mbg.co.nz. Cool. Simon, uh, a pleasure coming on. It's great learning about, yeah. obviously, your background about non-bank lending and going really valuable for us and our listeners out there because, like like Simon said, opportunity costs, right? Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on oh, today. Oh, it's been great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt.